It's fun to be in this time of the year uh, to enjoy family. Hopefully you all got to this last week with Thanksgiving and looking forward to, as it always feels, pretty short between now and uh, Christmas. But uh, it's kind of fun to be in Revelation. I mentioned it before, but I think Revelation and studying and seeing all these letters of the churches and the presentation of Christ saying, this is who I am to his churches— kind of recounting chapter one in each one of these seven letters, that you have that rolling in your mind as you celebrate the incarnation of Christ coming as a baby. Yes, humble and lowly, uh, but that is not where he stays. And he is lifted up and he is sovereign and he is overall. And we're going to see that in his description of himself here as well in chapter three. So you can open up your Bibles there. Chapter three, we're going to look at the letter to Philadelphia. Verses 7 through 13. I'll read our text and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, This is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have given before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I am giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come now desiring to learn, to learn and see more of Christ. As we're reminded of Christ being born lowly, taking on the form of man in a manger We understand the necessity of that, that he would be a perfect substitute and sacrifice for us. And yet we know he does not stay that way, and we understand that he will come again in glorious, triumphantly, that he will come as a conquering king. And so, Lord, we know and long for that day. May we be encouraged as we're reminded, even in this, as Christ himself encourages this church in Philadelphia, and by extension, all the churches that would come after to read this letter. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, there are at least two books that I don't want to be asked to write. And good news, no one is asking me to write any books, so I don't have to worry. I don't think too much. But I think if I had to pick two books I don't want to write on, you know, when it comes to, I think, spiritual things, you probably would say you know, evangelism, prayer, those would be tough books to write. I think every Christian feels a little inadequate in those areas, but maybe even more so because I could feel like I could get after those biblically. I can look to church history and kind of give a lot of good advice, but there's two areas that are more personal that I don't really want to touch. And honestly, if you look down kind of the Christian booksellers list and you see those who touch them, often there's some irony because a few years later, Sometimes you ask whether they should have been the ones writing these books. And those two topics are marriage and parenting. It's, it's hard to write a book on marriage. You, you can say, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. But anytime you get in there and go, let me look, let me take a look at my marriage. I go, I don't know if I want to be out there telling everyone this is the way to do it outside of what the scripture says. But even more so with, say, parenting. But yet I understand there are biblical, and so you could write a biblical book on parenting. I think it's called Proverbs. That's all advice you'll get from me. 
Uh, but I was asked this week about parenting and just kind of some, what do you do and, and different things. And it got me thinking in light of this text, there, there is a reversal of my own personal sovereignty in parenting. So when I say sovereignty, because we don't have a sovereign in America, you think of the, the Queen of England, she's the sovereign, she was the sovereign, now King Charles is the sovereign, right? They don't have much authority, but in the old days, they did, right? They were, they were sovereign, that is, they have absolute control. Well, we're going to look at Christ, who's going to be the one with absolute control, and it's beautifully described, and it's going to pull back a lot of Old Testament imagery. I think that's going to be very helpful this morning. But you and I, we might have some little authority in different areas. You might be the boss. You might be over things. But we tend to, over time, lose that authority. And I just thought how interesting it is that as you look at the life of Christ, you very much see the opposite. He's treated as one without authority, and he continues to gain what it would be reputationally, people realizing, who is this man? And then ultimately, everyone, when he returns, will see him with their eyes, and they will understand who he is, the perfectly sovereign one. Because just to use the example of parenting, it's pretty much a progression from my kids thinking I am all-powerful and all-knowing to teenage years. You don't know anything. Well, you used to think I knew things, right? I have the secret knowledge. I, I know where things are. I know where to buy things. Um, I love when there was a question about parenting. It was more on the discipline side of things. And the wonderful thing about discipline with younger children, and our oldest is only 10, um, although he's hard to pick up these days. But when they're little, I can just remove them from the situation. It's wonderful. They can kick, and they can scream, and they can say, I don't want to, I don't want to. And I just can go over and, you know, pick up the two-year-old and go, it's time to go. You know, we're leaving. Whereas they get to be 100 pounds, 150 pounds, and I say it's time to go, I can't do that anymore, right? And you just see it over time. Wow. I thought I had some control. I thought I had some influence to where you're slowly losing that sovereignty to where they become adults. And you don't really have any control other than the respect that they have for you, which hopefully biblically, if they're believers, is there. But it is to say you, you continue to lose control, but the Lord doesn't ever lose control. There might be an appearance of things in the world where you go, man, is the Lord on his throne? Pastor Tom preached last week. The Lord is on his throne. He has the authority, and you'll see it here. And it's not just authority that's kind of ethereal, but it's rooted in this Old Testament idea of the throne of David. And I think there is coming, and we're going to study this as we progress through Revelation, that there is a reality where Christ needs to reign before the nations on this earth from a real throne in a real Jerusalem. It's not just a spiritual reigning. He's in control, yes, but it's a physical reign. And it harkens back to this idea of David, which is brought up here in verse 7. And so as we look at Philadelphia, I, I want to just ask some questions this morning that I think are going to help us. If you understand this, you get an answer to this question. Interpreting and understanding the passage will be much easier. I've been teaching a few people are talking a little bit about how to study the Bible and I firmly believe when, when I say this that 90% of it really is on the observation side of things. Or at least you should be spending 90% of your time on the observation. So a lot of times you'll talk about observation, interpretation, application is kind of a classic phrase. But they're not like 35, 35, 35. I know that doesn't equal 100, but bear with me. Uh, they're not equal parts, 33.333. But that observation is heavy because once you observe and understand and give answers, well, now the interpretation doesn't take as long. But if you spend a few minutes just looking and reading and observing, and then all of a sudden try to interpret, you often get in trouble because you miss things, especially within context because Revelation, what's its context? Well, Revelation, the book of Revelation, the context is the rest of the scriptures. And so all of a sudden you become like pretty intimidated in understanding it. But I think this morning, as we observe, we're going to spend some time in Isaiah, and it will help us tremendously and be worth the journey back to Isaiah chapter 22. But I want to observe, and I want to ask these questions. I want to ask, as you look at verse 7, what is the key? If we understand what the key is, we'll understand what does it mean that Jesus has it, that he possesses this key. Verse 8, behold, I have given you an open door. We understand what 
the door is, what is the open door, we can interpret what it means that the church has it. And then lastly, verses 9 and 10, and then kind of this promises that kind of flows through verse 13, particularly, what is it this means, what does it mean in verse 10, that I will keep you from the hour of testing? And if we can understand and answer those three questions, what is the key, what is the open door, and what is the hour of testing? And we can come to present that as this is what these things are, then I think we'll be able to understand the whole and understand Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia. By way of reminder, we've been going through this. This is the sixth of seven churches along this postal route. And so we're kind of making our way around the circle now. If you think of lower right-hand corner, we're not quite. The lowest one is Laodicea, but just above there is the church of Philadelphia. Now, we understand we have an American city named Philadelphia, and most of you can probably give a pretty good definition of what this means. It's used biblically a few times, and it's this idea of brotherly love. And so Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is the city of brotherly love. Here in, which is modern-day Turkey, it was in a strategic place at the time on this postal route from Rome to the east. And it was called the gateway to the east. And as far as religion goes, it didn't have the same kind of pomp and circumstance as some of the others with the emperor religion, but it did have a name as Little Athens just because there were so many different little temples throughout the city. The big issue they had is like Sardis, they were sitting on a fault line and through the history of the city, they had multiple earthquakes that caused destruction. But it's there in this city that this church is addressed. It's unique because it's not like the other churches in the same way where you see a condemnation or where there's a commendation and then there is some condemnation. That is, there's something critical. In fact, Philadelphia is similar back to uh, Smyrna, that there is nothing negative to say about it. Doesn't mean the church was perfect. It clearly is not because it's full of imperfect people. But they stand out because there is not the compromise that you see at Thyatira or kind of the apathy that you see from Sardis. Rather, they are persevering. They are being faithful. And so they're known as the faithful church. Well, how does Jesus address them? He addresses them in an encouraging way. That's going to be helpful, I think, when you come to verse 10. What is the hour of testing? Because this is meant to encourage. Therefore, these things have to mean something that would be positive, that you would experience to say, well, well, this means we're going to receive something that we should be encouraged by. But I want to look at verse 7 and, and just simply try to answer this question is, what is the key? We see into the angel, or we talk to the messenger, these seven messengers that set out, church leaders, coming back to the church at Philadelphia. Jesus addresses them and says it this way, that this is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says. You got to love at times where, of course, we don't always do repetition the same way they would have in Greek, but it's kind of repetitive almost. Why did you say it again? Well, just to emphasize No one is going to shut what he opens. And if he shuts it, nobody is getting in. And I just like it when it it does that kind of repetition to emphasize his complete sovereignty. It's the one who is holy, the one who is true. Now, every other church has had kind of an introduction. You look at Sardis just going backwards. This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars— or Thyatira, this is what the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says. And they all come from chapter 1, in that description of the Son of Man. Philadelphia does not necessarily come directly from it. But I think there is some relation to the phrase. And probably where you have it is, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5. The same idea of the true being the faithful. So the closest we get, we don't have it coming from directly like the others, the vision from 9 through verse 20, but emphasizing the holiness, the deity of Christ, and verse 5, that he is the faithful witness. That is, he is true. That is, what he says, 
he will accomplish. That's important. If you're going to make promises, your promises are only good as your character. They're only as good as you are as a person. Are you going to be true and faithful? Can you be trusted? Well, he is holy and he is true and he is trustworthy. We're going to look at Isaiah multiple times here this morning. And Isaiah uses that term holy almost exclusively of Yahweh. And he almost uses it exclusively as part of the phrase holy one of Israel. So this is a big deal. Like anytime you see in the New Testament where Christ is receiving the same character, the quality of God the Father. He is holy. And it's tantamount declaring that he is God, which of course we believe and hold is true, but you see it clearly declared here. He's holy in his character, his words, his actions, and his purposes. There's nothing that can be compared to him. And of course, that's going to be built on all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation. He's called this very thing, Revelation 6.10. The martyrs in Revelation 6, those who are martyred during the great tribulation, they cry out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? He is holy. He is true. That is, he has a holy right to judge sinfulness. And he is true. And he is able to vindicate his people. Both of those are important as you come to the way the world will end here in Revelation. But what is the key? I want you to flip back to Isaiah 22. We don't need to flip everywhere. And I try when we do that it's worth the trip. So if you flip all the way back to your Old Testament, just before Jeremiah, Isaiah 22. It's always nice when things kind of line up really well. And I knew looking at the book of Revelation that studying the book of Isaiah would, would definitely be helpful. And so our, our discipleship group's been going through Isaiah. And so it's kind of fun to flip back and to see my notes going through Isaiah 22. And I don't know if I caught all of this, honestly, until you sit down and really look and you see the imagery. Because this imagery from Revelation of the key of David is drawing on this same phrase in verse 22, the key of the house of David. But there is a whole context Revelation does it over and over and over again, where they pull a phrase. They don't quote the verse, but pull a phrase. And then you have to go back and you have to understand the phrase. And so what is the key becomes something of a, of a let's go study. It's, you can understand what it is. It's not a secret, but to understand its context, you need Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 22, looking at verse 15. So let's look at that together. He says, Thus says Lord Yahweh of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. Throughout this whole section of Isaiah, you're going to see judgment and blessing. In fact, throughout the whole book of Isaiah, you're going to see judgments and blessing or future promises of restoration. And here is judgment on Jerusalem. In fact, it's kind of looked at as an individual, this steward under Hezekiah's reign, who is in charge of the royal's household, who is failing at his job. The charge against them, verse 16, is that what right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here. You who hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a dwelling place for yourself in the cliff. Shebna is... Something similar to a prime minister to the king or a chief of staff in maybe the American system. One who has the key, who has charge of the royal household, the royal treasury and all those things. And instead of him protecting it when they are being uh, attacked, he's out there simply making a grander tomb for himself. And so this is the picture of Shebna. What kind of man is he? He's not there taking and being a good steward of the things of the Lord. Rather, he is descriptive and really of all of Israel that they're poor stewards. He just simply wants to build the biggest and the grandest tombstone so that everyone that comes after would know how great Shebna was. 
well, verse 17, Behold, Yahweh is about to hurl you headlong, O man. Fancy way of saying he's going to throw you. And he's about to grasp you firmly, and he will surely roll you tightly like a ball. You guys didn't realize your Old Testament's so much fun, did you? Why roll it like a ball? Hebrew is a very vivid language. Because you can throw something around a lot further. And he's going to roll them up, and he's going to throw them far, tightly like a ball, to be cast into a vast country, and there you will die, and there your glorious chariots will be, you disgrace of your master's house. I will push you out of office, and I will pull you down from your station. That's judgment. But then it will be on that day that I will summon my servant, and that's key in Isaiah, the servant song, the way he uses servant. In this case, my servant is Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him, and I will give your authority into his hand. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. That is, he will be one now who is given this authority, this stewardship over the royal household. And throughout Isaiah, when you see David and you see royal and you see household, there's always a movement towards the ultimate David. That is, it refers back to 2 Samuel 7 and this Davidic covenant that one will come from David who will sit on the throne forever. I will give you authority into his hand. I will make you a father that inhabits Jerusalem to the house of Judah. Verse 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Which for us, we go, why would you put it on his shoulder? Simply that they wore a sash and they attached the key to it. Everyone saw he has the key. Why is that important? He has the authority. The authority to what? When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And it will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. And so they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. And that day declares Yahweh of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off, fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off for Yahweh has spoken. So Eliakim here is the one who is given the stewardship. Shebna, is unfaithful. Eliakim is raised up. He is his faithful servant, and he is given the key of David. That is authority over the household, the ability to have complete authority. What he opens is opened. What he shuts, no one will shut. In fact, he's becoming this pillar, this peg throughout generation that is solid and firm until one day because ultimately even Judah will follow Israel into rebellion. He's saying even that solid peg will give way and fall and be cut off. That is, they're all going into exile at some point here in the near future. But this is a key picture. This is that idea of authority. That is, you have the ability to get in or not get in. I used to have it. And then I gave it to Dan Woods. And now I'm dependent on Dan to get us in Sunday morning, at least for the moment. Because they give how many keys here? They give one key. That makes sense, right? Security reasons. They don't want multiple keys floating around. Key fobs. We're advanced, you know, electronic age. But I used to. And if I was five minutes late to set up, sorry guys, hopefully it's not too cold out. Because no one's getting in until the man with the key shows up. Like him is the man with the key. Back to Revelation when Jesus says this, that I am he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, he is saying he has the key to the household of David, to all of its treasury, to say all of authority. I think importantly understanding that he has the key to David's throne, to David's messianic kingdom is where this is moving. It stresses that he has the sovereignty over those who enter into David's messianic kingdom. And he's saying, as we'll see, he can open, let people in, or he can shut people out. If you go back to uh, Revelation 1.18, we have another phrase here of the keys, where it's stressed that the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Same here. When you see key, you think authority. You think control. In that case, the emphasis here or there was that he has the control of death and Hades, the state of death and the realm of death, sovereignty over death and judgment. Here in verse 7, it is that stress over who can enter into the kingdom. Matthew 16, 19. You can choose to go there, listen. Um, but it's another place. Because he's going to use it in a similar way when it talks about the keys. And Peter's confession. Verse 19 of chapter 16, that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same idea here of control and authority. And if you remember back for those who were here, which was a while back in Matthew, I think that's talking as you work down, you understand this is that you have as the church the ability to have the message of the gospel. In fact, you kind of move to Matthew 18 and you see that there is some level which they're identifying with Christ and the church has that way of saying, this is one who is saved. Someone walks up here, gets baptized, enters into the church. There's this physical outworking of the Lord's will where the earth reflects what is true in heaven. It isn't that we can save someone. We don't have the keys in that way. But it is to say we have the message of the one who does, the one who saves, and the one who judges. The key of David ultimately represents the authority to admit and reject people. This is an affirmation that the gospel message is exclusive. Not in the sense that there's a kind of person or a kind of people that can't become a Christian, but it is to say there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. We think Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's not an accident. It's because of who he is. It's because of the authority he has. There's no one else with the authority to say that person can enter. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's an exclusive message. That are exclusive reality through Christ and Christ alone. So what is the key? I'll put it this way. The, the key of David represents the reality that Jesus has ultimate authority to admit and reject people from the messianic kingdom. Not only does this picture of the key and authority play a role the rest of the letter, but also Isaiah plays a role as well because it's going to keep coming back to this idea and it's going to help understand what the open door is in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have given before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now this open door terminology, and it's one of the debates that goes on in this section, is it's used elsewhere because it's a picture, right? And it can illustrate different things. And so often in the books of Acts, it's opportunities for ministry. John chapter 10 has Jesus, in essence, being the door of the sheep. He himself is the door. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about a, an open door for ministry being made. I think here, though, the context points us back to what is the open door? It is the key that opens this door, and they have it, which is they have entrance into the kingdom of heaven, the messianic kingdom, which no one can shut because they have been faithful. It goes on. So this is a promise being brought forward as a reward. What is the open door? The open door is a guaranteed entrance into the messianic kingdom because Jesus has opened it for them. This goes back to, does he have the ability? Is he holy? Yes. Is he true? Because if he is true, he's saying, I opened a door 
for you believers in Philadelphia, and there's no one who can shut that door. Of course, the inverse is true as well. If you're not in Christ, the door is shut, and there is no salvation. But for them, he says, I know your deeds. It's similar to some of the other phrases, but again, there's no judgment that comes for this church. He knows their deeds, and he's given them an open door. He's given them this guaranteed entrance into the messianic kingdom. That is this open door. It's been open because he and he alone can open it. And it says so because you have a little power and have kept my word, which is also similar phraseology to what we've seen before, except for this idea of little power. It would seem that the church in Philadelphia should be an encouragement to a relatively small church in a relatively small town in a relatively small state. He's saying they have a little power and it's meant to be not a negative thing. Some people look at it and associate power with the Spirit. I don't think that's here at all. I think it's simply over their influence. He's saying you have a little influence. You have a little ability. You probably are, as people at least suggest, they were a smaller church. Yet, they didn't bend. They kept his word. They did not deny his name. Therefore, they have been faithful. And Christ knows their faithfulness. And he encourages them, saying, if you're truly in me, then the door is open before you. No one can cut you off from the one who is faithful and the one who is true. They have an invitation to the most important place there is. Most important, as we look towards even the rest of Revelation, the most important banquet there is. They have an invitation, and no one can revoke that if they are in Christ. So the open door is a guaranteed entrance into the Messianic kingdom because Christ has opened it for them. So what is the key? What is the door? What is the hour of testing? Look at verse 9. We understand that we're talking in this nature of salvation. And there's a movement here of promises. But first, you see there is opposition. It says, verse 9, Behold, I am giving up those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. This term synagogue of Satan has shown up once before. If you remember back uh, to the church of Smyrna, verse, chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 9, there he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In the same way here, 3, verse 9, he says, you appear to be God's people. But the very thing that God says, the very Jewish Messiah has come, and they have rejected. He's saying it is a lie. He's going to give them up. Remember, he's the one who holds the key. He can open and he can close the door. But it's interesting in verse 9, he says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Depending on how you understand open door, if you understand open door more towards open ministry, which I don't think is necessarily what's in view here, but you would see and understand that there seems to be where there's an evangelistic enterprise that goes forward and they're going to be, despite their small size, successful. But I think more likely it is this, we're probably looking back to the promise that Israel is ultimately going to be saved. If you look at uh, Romans 11, Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says, I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In verse 26, he says, And so that all Israel will be saved. That is future, just as it is written. Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But he says, verse 28, From the standpoint of the gospel, that is the church age, they are enemies. Hence, 
They don't believe the true gospel at this point in the church of Philadelphia and at this point for the church today. But from the standpoint of God's choice, there's something going on in God's plan. They are beloved for the sake of their fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God's are irrevocable. And so that becomes important because we're looking towards what does it mean as you get to chapter 4 through 19 when you no longer have the church mentioned. I think there's a movement from God's focus being on the church to God's focus being back on Israel to where you'll see a fulfillment of Romans chapter 11. And if you went all the way back to Isaiah 60 verse 14, which I'll have on the slides for this one, they would have, Jews, had thought that the days coming when they thought the world, the Gentiles, would bow at their feet. And Jesus simply flips the scripts and says, you misunderstand. The day is coming when you will recognize, you will look on the one whom you have pierced in Zechariah, and you will mourn. In fact, it says here, the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who spurned you will bow themselves to the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And I think that's true. I think that's coming in Revelation. But he takes that same phraseology and say, first they're going to bow before Christ. They're going to bow and say, this church at Philadelphia, small, they were right about the Christ. They were right that Jesus is the Messiah, the one and the only and the true Savior. Well, verse 10, our question. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Similar formula, you have persevered, which is simply saying you are a true believer. I will also keep you out of this hour of testing. This is a technical term, this idea of a period of time where they are going to test. I don't think it's out of place here. Some people go, this seems out of place when you come to Revelation, especially if you look and see, is this the church being removed in the rapture? But I look and I see, well, you only have one more church in Laodicea who is not faithful, right? They're lukewarm and they're going to be spit out. And this is a promise to say, this hour that is coming, which the rest of the book is about, it's a promise to say the church will not experience it. We know the church is going to experience trial, tribulation, martyrdom, all those things. But I think this technical hour of testing, which is specific, right? It's not a hour of testing. It is the hour of testing. It's not the little t tribulation, but the great tribulation. The church is not going to experience that. In fact, he's going to keep them out of it. Go back to the very beginning of, of the phrase to the churches. And it's talking about the things that are, which is these seven churches, right? And the things that will be. Both are in Revelation. It's very similar to the way Revelation looks at judgment and future restoration. Revelation does something similar here. You see things that are, and you see that things will be. This is where this is a promise. Of, this is the reality of what's going on in the church, but they're promise going forward. And the whole book of Revelation is set up that way. Let me tell you about the things that are, and then let me, chapter 4 onward, talk about the things that will be. So it's best understood here that it is this idea of being kept from or kept out of. There's a lot of, a lot of hinges on how you understand from. In English, our prepositions are kind of just loose, right? From, on, in, at, but it's very technical in Greek. And this is the, the, the technical of out of. And I think it has that impl implication of out of physically, not just being spiritually preserved through. That is to say, I think this promise means something significant, not just simply what has been already promised, but that they'll be kept from a specific period of the day of the Lord where that judgment, that wrath is poured out on unbelievers. Look at a couple of different verses use similar language to illustrate that. John 12, verse 27, Jesus says that, now my soul has become dismayed. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. That is to say, Jesus is not asking to be preserved through it. 
He's clearly saying, I would like this to be removed from. Colossians 1, similar language. Who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That is, rescued us from, there's your preposition, the authority of darkness. That is, you're not still in it. You're removed out of it, and you are transferred into the kingdom of light. I use those just to say, when you get to verse 10, I think that is the most natural reading that you will be kept out of the hour of testing. Now, of course, what is the hour of testing? It's not as explicit here um, as you, I think you have to look at other places to understand all that is going on, both in Revelation and the rest of Scripture. But I do know this, before we look at that, that you have to look at the second part of the verse as well, that this isn't meant to be something that is partial. This isn't meant to be something localized. Whatever this hour of testing is, it is about to come upon, not some, but the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There's two words you could use for test. This isn't a test here of, let me test you so that I can help you learn. You know, you test your kid, you know things, and then let me help you grow. This is more of a, this is already a, a test that is either you pass or you fail. That's this kind of test here those who dwell on the earth. The test is coming, the hour of testing, and it's not going to be partial. It's going to be whole. The church of Philadelphia has already undergone tribulation, little t, but this promise is to say they, and I think by extension the church as a whole, will not undergo the wrath poured out on the day of the Lord. We don't have time to go into that all. We'll continue to look at the day of the Lord, especially as we get into the judgments coming further in Revelation. So what is the hour of testing? I think it's that technical term. And put it this way, it is the period of time described in Revelation, those chapters 4 through 19, as the great tribulation, which the church will not experience. I understand that when you look at First Corinthians, or Thessalonians chapter 4, that it's that same idea that I think that promise means they are, this is not for them, they will be removed. And you go, why? Why removed? I think it goes back to because the focus goes back from the church back to Israel. You see, there's promises that must be fulfilled, and that makes sense that the Lord would do that. And also, when you get to Revelation chapter 4, the church is no longer discussed. They're missing. It's inferred, I think, that they are missing because they're not there. If you go to First Thessalonians chapter 4, a couple notes from there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. It's important to understand that when you get to Thessalonians, that the question here of the day of the Lord and has it come is what is at question. Chapter 5, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. That's his subject. That's his topic as he addresses the day of the Lord. And the question then becomes, are they, one, has it happened? And are they going to experience it? And I think the answer here is Paul saying, no. First Thessalonians 4. 13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's just a way of saying those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And that's the term that eventually gets to Latin, rapio, which then has been popularized. And we use the term rapture, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. It's meant, verse 18, to be a comfort, encouragement. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just go over a little bit to chapter 5. 
verse 9. Again, the context is the day of the Lord, not just eternal judgment. I think that's important to understand. Now, what does verse 9 mean? It says, God has not appointed us for wrath. What kind of wrath? The wrath that is poured out at the day of the Lord, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Again, why? So that we might comfort one another, verse 11, build one another up just as we are doing. So the church of Philadelphia, they're meant to be encouraged that you are not going to experience that. I think by extension, the Lord's church will be raptured before the beginning of that 70th week, and the focus goes back to Israel. More on that as we kind of go, and I know we've talked about it a few times, different Sunday mornings. At some point, pull up a graph and try to get people a little more oriented. But I think that is the promise here in verse 10. The focus goes back to Israel, and the church is removed. But look at the rest. That's not the only promise that comes. Of course, the promise again that he is, verse 11, coming quickly, and we are to hold fast on what we have so that no one will take your crown. Same kind of language we've seen that should be encouraging. Hold fast. There is a reward. Be an overcomer, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it any more. Brings the imagery of Eliakim again. He is, remember, he used to be a peg, it said in Isaiah 22. Same way here, he's saying, I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the sanctuary of my God who will never go out from it anymore. Now, right on him, that is, you are, as we've seen before, you are his and he is yours. You write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the point? How would you summarize? We find those, those are the answer to those three questions. I simply say we are promised entrance into the kingdom, fellowship, and here identification with Christ. We're to persevere in our witness to the gospel in spite of great odds, in spite of the reality, in their case, they have a little power, that they have a little influence. It's a call to the Church of Philadelphia. It's a call to us. Persevere in your witness because you know Christ has all authority and he will preserve you. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. He's saying you're responsible for persevering. You're responsible for remaining faithful. But understand it's ultimately, it's the one who is able to persevere or the one who's able to preserve you is the one who's making the promise, the one who is holy, the one who's true, the one who has the key, the authority of David, that coming kingdom. Persevere because you know he can and will preserve you. I imagine they did exactly what the church of Thessalonica did, which is, sorry to encourage one another with these words. It's an encouragement because we all like to have something to look forward to. Makes sense that as we come to the end here and of this faithful church before you get to Laodicea, which of course is very much threatened and their lukewarmness to be spit out hot or cold. But in here, you understand that there's a connection here. That all the trials and all the tribulations, even the fact that you might think the day of the Lord has come like the church of Thessalonica, but you're reminded here, you know, it hasn't. This isn't the big T, the great tribulation. This isn't the hour of testing. He'll keep you from that, but there's plenty of hard days until that day comes. In fact, for many of us, the Lord tarries. We'll face many trials, tribulations, pain, suffering, and ultimately death. But this should be a comfort that along the way, it's going to happen, but he leaves you some comfort, some expectation, some blessing that should encourage you along the way. Maybe a silly example, but I think of our kids who recently went to the dentist, and I'm single-handedly going to support multiple dentists and orthodontics, I think, orthodontics before the end. But I don't know if you did this with your kids. Tooth fairy, you know, to get some chocolate. They get a quarter if they leave the tooth out, right? Well, Why? Well, there actually is a reason if you think about it, right? It's traditional. A lot of people say, hey, put your, put your tooth out. You get a quarter. Yay. 
But there is a way which is trying to help the child look forward to something that is absolutely inevitable. And I don't know if you remember, but it's really strange when your teeth get loose and they start falling out. And it's just simply to say, when it happens, you get something. Maybe ironic if you give them chocolate, Dennis would say. But it's to say, they're looking forward to say, but this is mom and dad saying, don't worry, this is super normal. It happens to everyone. You're going to make it through it. And there's a reward on the other side. These judgments are coming. They're going to happen. Persecution to the church and the church age is going to happen. But the comfort is that he has made promises and he is faithful and true. And you can endure them. He's not going to stop it. You're going to have to endure until either he returns and the church is raptured or until we leave this earth. But it's comforting to know these truths to hang on to say, but it will be better. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can study your word, that we can be encouraged as churches throughout the last two thousand years have been encouraged by this letter to this church at Philadelphia. We can be encouraged by the realities of the authority of Christ and the picture that there is a door to his kingdom, that if we are in Christ, that we have trusted wholly in his death on the cross, his resurrection, that it is a door opened that no one can ever close. And the promise even here to know that you will return, that your prophetic program will be right on schedule, and that we can trust you, that you are the one who is true, the one who is holy, the one with all authority. We just ask these things in your son's name. Amen.